My guest is a licensed acupuncturist and herbalist practicing in New York and New Jersey. With a deep commitment to women's health and well-being, including fertility, pregnancy, and postpartum care, just to name a few, while working in hospitals treating patients with acupuncture, it made her realize that she wanted to create a practice of her own with healing philosophies that combine both Eastern and Western medicine. Hello, Leah Kim, and welcome to my podcast, Should Have Listened to My Mother. Hi, Jackie. Thank you so much for having me. This is very exciting. I even told my mom about this, and the first thing she said is, make sure I sound incredible. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you are first-generation Korean-American, is that correct? I am. I'm technically what they call 0.5, meaning I was born in Korea, and I came here when I was very young and was uh, brought up here in the States. So first generation um, would mean that you were born first here. generation being born here. And both parents are Korean. Both South, parents South are Korean. Korean. South Korean. Mom's South Korean. Dad's family actually comes from the north. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Dad's mother was incredible. She was able to bring her six children by herself all the way from North Korea down to South Korea during the Korean War. Where was her husband fighting? My grandfather had passed um, from a biking accident when my dad was five and my youngest aunt was three. So my grandmother, um, who is also an amazing person, she raised six children by herself, put all six children through college by herself. And then when when my father got married, she and my youngest aunt, she took uh, my youngest aunt with her, and she emigrated to America by herself and uh, established herself here in New York, and then eventually was able to bring my whole family over. So this is all your paternal grandmother and aunt? This is my paternal grandmother. Oh my goodness, so they came over, and how old was your dad when he came to the States? Uh, so my dad was probably, if I was four, dad would have been only 32. So they were married in Korea, and my my parents had all three of us. I have three sisters. We're all about a year, year apart. Um, and then when my youngest sister was about one and a half, two years old, we emigrated here to the States. So I came when I was about four, my middle sister was three, and then my youngest sister was two. We have to have a whole other episode of the podcast to talk about your paternal grandmother. Yeah, and she and two other Korean ladies built one of the largest Korean churches in New York. So will you mm-hmm. come back and we can talk about your dad's side sure, of the Sure, we can totally talk about my grandmother. <laughs> what is your mom's name? My mom's name is Myung Hee Kim, K-I-M. Could you spell that for me? So that's M-Y-U-N-G-H-E-E. And your full Korean name is? Jungyun, J-U-N-G-Y-O-O-N. And then Leah Kim. Mm-hmm. Leah is actually an adopted name that my mother made us. Uh, adopt. So 
we, my sisters and I went by our Korean names throughout our whole childhood. And when we moved out to Long Island, uh, which was in my sophomore year in high school, we moved out there uh, because of school issues. And it turned out my sisters and I and a handful of other minority children were in a predominantly white high school. And so I can't remember if someone suggested it or she thought of it. She thought that it'd be easier for us to acclimate to a predominantly white high school if we took on American names, which was fine by me because I had been so sick of people butchering my Korean name for years. And she said the only caveat was either I pick a, we, my sisters and I pick a name from the Bible or that one of us has to be named Sharon because the flower of Korea is the Rose of Sharon, S-H-A-R-O-N. So she said, either going to pick names from the Bible or one of you is going to be named Rose and the other is going to be named Sharon. And then she was like, the third person, I, we don't know, just, we'll just pick a name from the Bible. <laughs> So who picked what? Who got Sharon? Nobody got Sharon because none of us wanted to be named Rose or Sharon. And there's a lot more names in the Bible that was, you know, interesting. So we all picked names that we, I guess, we resonated with. And I picked Leah. My sister picked Rebecca. And my younger sister obviously was not paying attention during Sunday school because she picked the name Alicia spelled E-L-I-S-H-A. Now, that is actually the spelling of the prophet Elisha. So she named herself after a prophet, <laughs> a male prophet. Kind of befits her sort of, you know, youngest child, like, I'm the end-all, be-all. So this is high school that you took an American name. Where were you living yeah. before when you were, first came to the U.S.? We lived the majority of our young lives out in Queens, and it was very idyllic. We lived in a very safe area of a Flushing and then an area called Fresh Meadows, and it was great. In junior high school, we'd play hooky, and we would take the bus or the subway into Manhattan, and, you know, my friends and I would go down to Canal Street and, you know, go hang out at Canal Jeans. And, you know, one time we actually took uh, the train all the way to Coney Island. Is this like cutting school days? Your mom didn't oh, know? Yeah. She... Mom had no <laughs> idea. <laughs> mom and dad. And then, of course, cutting school actually kind of continued on into high school in Long Island. So my mom and my dad would have to go to work early. So they would leave us and our our school was within walking distance from our house. It was a, a, maybe like a 25-minute walk. You know, it was walkable. So at the time, none of us could drive. So my mom would stand in the doorway and walk, watch us walk down towards the high school. And then she would get in her car and drive off. Well, my sisters and I knew that after a certain point, she can't see us. So we would hide in the bushes and then wait you know, for X amount of time that we knew it would take for her to get ready and drive out. And we'd just walk back home. <laughs> and the three of us would it would be the like a secret between the three of us. We'd stay home, we'd eat, we'd watch TV, do whatever. And you know, we didn't do this often, but it was you know it was a little hard for us. We had so much freedom growing up um, in Queens, and Long Island was a little bit stifling for us. You know, you couldn't get anywhere because there was no mass transit. 
Yeah. We were used to taking buses since we were young. Well, I was. My sisters were too young. I was used to taking buses and hopping on a subway and going somewhere, um, or we could walk to the local stores. So Long Island was a little bit uh, of uh, a little bit culture shock for me. Yeah, and then mm-hmm. you know, being one of the ten minority students in a predominantly white high school. It wasn't all that fun for us. So we were just like, eh, maybe today we'll just stay home. And, you know, the three of us would always have to say, we're in agreement, we're not telling mom. And, of course, we'd all be like, yeah, of course. Um, so it wasn't until much later, obviously, until we were, you know, well into our adulthood that we happened to tell our mom that this is what we used to do. And she just, like, she was in shock. And then she started to <laughs> laugh. And she's like, you guys are such jerks. And I'm like, Mom, we at least got into good colleges, you know, we're, we're, we're not derelicts. She's like, ugh. She's like, if I knew, I was like, if you knew, we'd be dead. Did you speak Korean at home? Yes. So it was the policy of our parents that in the house we could only speak Korean. And if we started to speak in English, they would correct us. Or, you know, we would get, like, a punishment where we couldn't watch TV for an hour or something like that. So um, we only spoke Korean in the home. And, you know, I'm grateful for that. Uh, it's why, you know, my sisters and I are so relatively bilingual. But when we were younger, it was, we could not, they wouldn't answer us if we spoke in English. It, it was very strict. And, you know, as I said, I'm very grateful to my parents. How was your mom's English? My mom being, at the time, an at-home parent, we had a small community of Korean friends, so she didn't use it that much. It wasn't until later, I would say, like, later in grade school, where she was offered uh, a job. My mom, having the educational background that she did... Uh, someone suggested to her, and so she had to learn how to speak English on the fly, and she actually had to teach herself English while she was teaching English to these young children. No way. She taught English to Asian immigrant children? Specifically Korean children. She was basically teaching herself the lesson that she was going to teach these young kids the next day. Did they know that she didn't really know what she was doing? Oh, yeah. She was pretty much, she was honest with them, you know. They would know that, like, she wasn't, she'd be like, you know, they would, of course, know that, like, uh, Mrs. Kim doesn't know how to say these things. And um, (laughs) so just to let you know, my mom graduated college uh, as a teacher, and she opened up her own nursery school in Korea. And so oh she ran a, a nursery school. So I, um, I have very vague memories, but my whole house was a nursery school. We lived, it was a building, and we lived in the upstairs, and the nursery school was downstairs. I have these very vague memories of the house, and one of the most dearest memories I have is that my mom had this brilliant idea to create a little cubby, which was a slide, from the upstairs of our home. So my I have a memory of sliding down to the nursery because she had this background in uh, teaching the 
New York public school system was so desperate for anybody to teach um, ESL classes that they hired her, even even though she had such a limited command of the English language. But in those years, you know, she became very proficient, and she taught these kids, and a lot of times these Korean kids, their parents were working 12, 16 hours, and these kids didn't have um, a place to go after school. And so a lot of times my mom just brought some of these kids home to our house. And so there was this sense of, you know, you help out your community in any way, shape, or form. And I think that was probably the seed to my mom creating um, the pre-nursery and nursery school that she started with the church that my paternal grandmother started. And we ran a five-borough pre and pre-K, pre-nursery and pre-K out of that church. We had at one time seven yellow buses that were going to all five boroughs picking up uh, children to bring it um, to our program. Oh, this is so cool. I can't tell you how many guests have either been children of teachers or, or teachers themselves. They work so hard, and they could change your child's life, any child's life. Mm-hmm. And there's a strata of Korean-American children in the New York and New Jersey era, uh, area that still remember my mom. Hmm. They, she was, you know, she was the, the you know, head of the pre-K nursery school, um, and because it was also run by our church, they would also, those who came to our church would see her, because you know, my mom's a pastor, and uh, she would also be doing the, the, the pre-K and K um, sermons on I Sundays. I didn't know your mom was a pastor. My mom's a theologian. She, she is retired now, but she does help the Sunday school in Korea that, uh, for the church that she attends. Um, there. What was the name of the school in Queens? The church is the Korean Church of Queens, and her nursery school was called Grace Daycare. Is it still there? Do you know? It is still there. It was really meant to promote the, the church um, and the Korean country and the community. We sort of moved away from, you know, really embracing um, community. Who was the disciplinarian in the family? Oh, Mom. <laughs> Mom was definitely the disciplinarian. She was the everyday disciplinarian. Let me actually back up. She she was the one that we obviously feared, and Dad was always the one that, like, we'd be like, oh, yay, Dad, you know, like, we'd run off to Dad. She was the everyday disciplinarian, but I think the majority of the time, Moms are the everyday disciplinarian. They're the ones that are usually saying, no, you can't do this, can't do that, you know, get your homework done, because they're running the household. But my dad, he was a great disciplinarian, and even now my mom will uh, concede to the fact that he may have screamed, you know, but he he was, he never laid a hand on us. Um, Mom spanked us every once in a while. She employed, actually, a very interesting psychological tactic so if we got in trouble, my sisters and I, she would send us out into the backyard, and she would say, 
go out there and you pick the switch that you're going to, you know, be basically disciplined with. And she said, if you pick a bad one that breaks too easily or is too soft, then you're going to get one extra, you know, lash. And so my sisters and I would go out there and we'd be like, you know, stickly. We used to call it, we'd call it meh meh because you'd go meh meh, right? Mm. And then we'd, you know, walk back in with our little twig, you know, our meh meh stick. And my mom would, you know, like observe it and, you know, kind of bend it. And the majority of time, she'd just be like, well, this is pretty good. So, you know, we're going to leave it and let it get stiffer. So you, you guys better get ready for the next time, you know, you get in trouble. So the switch never really hit our bottoms. So, uh, you know, it, like I said, it was really more like a threat. threat. <laughs> oh, my gosh. If you were upset or broken heart, or who would hug you and embrace you and cuddle you, your mom or your dad? You know, I, we were lucky. Our parents were a lot more affectionate than what other Asian parents were like. According to some of my Asian friends, like growing up, their parents rarely gave them hugs or kisses or, you know, said, I love you. In our family, it was doled out in moderation, but it was doled out by both parents. We were really lucky. If it was like a friendship heartbreak, you know, mom and dad would give us very different things. It was interesting. Mom would always tell us to buck up and just give us a hug and tell us to move on. And Dad would be the one that, like, sort of explained things, which sort of was the complete opposite of the way that I think, you know, most people experience their parents. But I think part of that was, you know, my mom is driven and my father is a dreamer. Oh, how neat is that? And, um... And he's the engineer, the dreamer is the electrical engine. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. I think he sort of picked something he was passionate about, but he picked something that didn't speak to his innate nature. And it took my dad a long time to sort of find the thing he really uh, loved doing and was good at. Um, my mom was much more of a pragmatist and, you know, the pragmatic side of me comes from my mother. Uh, and, you know, she always knew she wanted to be a teacher. She was good at it. You know, she always had all these kids around her. She knew how to set them up and make sure that they were eating, put their shoes away. You know, she was very much a pragmatist. So when it came to sort of the, like, boo-boo kissing and the hugging, mm, not so much. It was pretty much dad who'd be like, you're going to be okay. Let's dust that off. And uh, because of that, I think my sister and I are, were much more lovey-dovey to our nieces and nephews. We're always kissing them, hugging them, we tell them we're, we love them um, a lot more than, I would say, my counterparts, my friends who are of our age group and our ethnicity. If we needed a hug, they'd give us a hug. And you know what? Now, speaking to you, I just had a memory. I remember once asking my parents, why don't they ever really say, I love you? And, you know, I remember my mom, it was my mom explaining that in Asian culture, they don't always say, I love you, but that they say it in what they do. 
They show you know, it with their action. They show it, right? And, and I remember her saying, we show it because we make sure you're in clean clothes. We show it to make sure that you're always having good, fresh food. You know, we show it because sometimes we discipline you so that you become a, a good person. So I remember that because I remember being a kid and watching on TV or if I went to friends' homes, They'd just be like, I love you, honey. You know, like, be good. So Bye, how sweetie. old were you? How did This is pretty great that you vocalized what you were thinking and feeling. Were you in high school already at this point? No, this is grade school. I know it's grade school because I remember having a similar conversation with my mom and my dad. My dad didn't want to answer the question, but my mom did. So do you remember... Oh, gosh, what was that show? It had Ricky Schroeder, Silver Spoons. So this was a sitcom in the, I'd say, early 80s, and it had Ricky Schroeder, who was like, you know, the teen dreamboat. You know, it was like this very blonde, uh, Aryan child on TV. And, you know, I was just completely fascinated with this kid. And I remember one day I was in the bathroom pooping, that's what I was doing, and we only had one bathroom, so we had to be very, op pretty comfortable and open with just, you know, walking in and being like, sorry, I have to wash my hands, or, you know, whatever. And I remember I was pooping, and my mom had to come in to get something in the, in the bathroom, and I said, Mom, I have a question. And she goes, well, okay, when you're done, you know, <laughs> come out, and I'll answer it. So... I remember her, you know, leaving the bathroom, finished pooping, did my business, and washed my hands, came out. And my mom was sitting at her vanity, which was right next to the bathroom. So I sat next to her, and, you know, I remember putting on her. This is, it's interesting, now that we're talking about, whenever I had questions, it was always next to my mom, watching her put on or taking off makeup on her in her vanity. So that's why I admit it was grade school when I asked her, why don't you say I love you? Because it was a conversation I used to have looking at her through the mirror, which I think maybe took away some of the directness. Cause well, she was looking in the mirror and she wasn't have to look directly into your eyes. Right. We were talking through each other through the mirror. Wow. Because, yeah, it's funny now, now that I think about it while I'm talking to you about this on the phone. In Asian culture, to show respect, you don't stare into your parents' face. Like, you don't go, you don't have eye-to-eye -eye contact, you know? You you show respect by slightly lowering your eye, right? Mm -hmm. and, um, and this was actually a huge problem. It took my parents a long time to figure out what the hell was happening because my sisters and I, I can't, my sisters had the same experience. We would go to school, a teacher would be telling us something, and we would lower our eyes out of respect. And the teacher thought we were being disrespectful and not paying attention. And we would get reprimanded, being like, look at me when I'm speaking to you. So then we oh would speak, look at them gosh, because crazy. they were speaking to them, right? And then yeah. when we went back home and my parents were telling us something, we would look at them because they were speaking to us. And then they'd be like... You know, how dare you? you don't, that's a sign of defiance, 
right, in Korea. So they'd be like, don't look at me that way, you know, and then so we'd, you know, we'd be completely confused. And it took us a long time until one day we realized that was the thing. And, my, and, you know, my mom and dad realized that we were confused as to where the hell we were supposed to look when we were walking up. So I think the whole reason we would have questions, you know, it's so interesting when you start thinking, talking about these things, what comes up, it was easier to ask questions because we were speaking to each other through the mirror and, you know, she was always doing something. So it was never like we sat down in a TLC movie where you see mothers and daughters sitting down and be like, so honey, you know, do you This is questions? how it works. <laughs> yeah, like, like, no. Yes, it's my parents easier never to had have that. a conversation. Oh, my god! Exactly. Gosh. If we were going to have a conversation like that, like sitting across from each other, mm-hmm. we were in big trouble. That was it. That was, we were obviously in big trouble if we were going to have a conversation like that. But if we were having a conversation where I'd ask questions, interestingly, with my mom, it was generally when she was putting her makeup on or taking it mm-hmm. off and we were talking to each other via the mirror. So what was the question? Was the question I, the I love you? How come you don't say I love you when you came out of the bathroom? Well, that, that was, or was no, the, the that cute was, blonde, that was, the uh, Aryan. <laughs> no, I asked, I asked her, I was like, Mom, do white people poop or is this something only Koreans do? And I remember her <gasps> laughing. And, yeah. and she goes, no, no, everybody poops. Oh and I was gosh. like, I was like, even Ronald Reagan, the president of the United States, goes, yes, everybody poops. I'm like, even my teacher? She's like, yes, everybody poops. It's a Pooping is a natural thing. I'm like, I don't think Ricky Schroeder poops. And she was just like, he does. I'm telling you, he poops. And I'm like, they never show him pooping on TV. And she, and she, she was like, well, pooping is very private. And I said, but do you come in when I poop? And she says, that's because we're family. She's like, pooping is never something that's embarrassing when it's family. So, and, and I wonder when she and your dad were together late at night talking or something, would they just be laughing hysterically? Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> I, I mean, could you, like Rick you and tell I. your husband, like, oh, my God, guess what? That's what my your daughter said today. She thought that the president of the United States did because he was white. You are comfortable talking about a lot of things that you know other people would say. Can I say this? Yeah. Um, oh my God! I my whole family loves talking about poop. Like it's such a natural thing, and it's such a important thing to understand about your body because it's such an indicator of health. Absolutely. Right? It's cleansing. Um, you you don't want those toxins building up, you know? It's no, very important. No. It's very cleansing. It's very cleansing. It's also for a lot of people their only time that they're actually being still. Being still. Oh, my gosh. And, that's and, li- right. and listening to their bodies, right? Mm-hmm. Letting their bodies make the decision instead of them right. controlling it, everything. It's, exactly. It's one of the very few times where you truly have to be relaxed to be able to go. So I am Jackie Tantillo, and you're listening to Should Have Listened to My Mother, a weekly podcast where I get to have these wonderful conversations with Leah Kim, who is my uh, friend and my acupuncturist and a healer, and we talk about nutrition and well-being, physical and mental. You are so generous with these stories. You told me a story, how your mom used to 
have you go outside in the freezing cold, not a lot of jackets to build up your immune. Can you tell that story? So my mom, so it's a little bit of tradition in Korea. They don't do it because I think now they think it's child abuse. The idea is to start to you know, toughen up your children's immune system. When we were little, my mom would send us out into the backyard in the middle, like in the middle of the winter or at the start of the winter when the air was cold or if there would be snow, and she would send us out in shorts and maybe a hat and a light sweater and boots or something, and she'd tell us to go stand out there and play or stand out there, you know, for some time, and then she'd let us in, and obviously we'd have something warm to drink after, but the whole point of it was to get our bodies acclimated to the cold. Well, so now you can imagine, here is my mother standing inside, watching us from inside, and here's her three little Asian daughters basically running around in the backyard in their underpants, right? (laughs) And our neighbors walking through the window going, what the hell is this woman doing? Her children are running around in basically half-naked outside in the middle of winter. And I guess at the time we had, on one side of our house, we lived in a duplex, was a Japanese family who totally knew what we were doing, you know, and, like, never said anything. You know, we'd wave to each other. And then the other side we had this um, sort of older uh, white couple who we loved. But, you know, they'd watch us do this and one year they came out and they're like what are you guys doing at that and we're like we're playing and they you know they saw my mom and they're like for some reason they called my mom Kathy I guess because they couldn't pronounce my mother's name and they just chose Kathy as this random American name to call my mom Mm-hmm. And my mom just accepted it, and so they'd be like, Kathy, what are your children doing outside half naked? You know, and my mom in her broken English was trying to explain to them, oh, for health, for health. And they're like, they're going to catch a cold, take them inside. And I think that was probably the end of when my mom stopped sort of doing these things to try to strengthen our immune system. Because, you know, she got chastised by our neighbors, um, and... And she thought, oh, maybe this is America. Maybe they're right. This is their way to make my children healthier. And then at some point, you know, we were told, oh, you know, feed your kids lots of, you know, make them drink milk. It's so healthy for you. So I remember my mom forcing us to drink glasses of milk. And, you know, I personally hated milk. And, oh, and, you know, we'd cry and complain the only one of us that actually really liked milk was my middle sister, who happens to be a good three inches taller than my sisters and my See other sister. See what happens I, when you don't drink your uh, milk? No. <laughs> now I'm like, oh, I should have drank my milk. The funny thing was, you know, I grew up with having intestinal problems. Well, hello. Dare. Many years later, you realize, oh, most Asian children are lactose intolerant or lactose sensitive. Did your mom give up a lot of cultural traditions to fit in? Did she feel pressured to assimilate? No, you know what? She she did a good job balancing things out. An example would be, you know, she always made sure that my grandmother sent us new hanboks, which is the Korean, you know, traditional clothing. 
so that we always had new hanboks for like New Year's that we whenever we grew out of one set that she would request a second set. So we always felt like, oh, this is such special clothing. We're getting dressed up in our hanbok. But then she also did things like perm my sisters and I our hair so we'd look like little orphan Annie because that was very popular <laughs> if you remember. And she thought this would be awesome. So there are pictures of my sisters and I where we literally have a massive bro. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I apologize if my laughter comes across no, as being it's hilarious. <laughs> no, they're hilarious. Like my sisters and I are standing there and we've got this massive orphan Annie fro on top of our heads. So she did want you guys to kind of fit in or, you know, I don't know her reasoning. That's Yeah, well, my mom was also very much a fashion plate. Both my parents were a little bit of fashion plate. So part of that was they just always wanted to make sure we looked respectable. You know, I think part of it, she said that the, the sort of discrimination back in the 70s and 80s for Asian children was that your poor, you know, most Americans' experience of Asian children were or Asians were like we were refugees, especially more on the East Coast than the West Coast. And I think she always wanted to make sure that we looked presentable, that we looked really well kept, because it was very important to her. Well, again, all the things that parents do to show they love you, mm-hmm. without without the kids really thinking about it or knowing about the reasons why. Well, you also mentioned something about chasing the chicken down the Long Island Expressway. Oh. <laughs> or we, we oh, are running a little late because I still want to talk um, about your business and all the magical work that you do. But is sure. there a way we could share so, this? So this is a very infamous story. So uh, my sisters and I were all away in college. And at that time, my grandmother was living with my mom and. I remember calling my mom and saying, hey, mom, what's up? What's going on? And she was like, oh, you know, you know, things are a little exciting at the house. And I said, why? She's like, your, your grandmother, who is also a hoot, she's building a chicken coop in the basement. She's amazing. She's the one that taught me to knit, to sew, to cook. And I was like, why is she building a chicken coop in our basement? She said, well, we found a chicken on the LIE. <laughs> <laughs> Just for statement alone, we found a chicken on the Long Island Expressway. I'm like, what? She's like, oh, yeah. I was driving back from church with your grandma, and all of a sudden, your grandma starts screaming, pull over, pull over, chicken, chicken, pull over. My mom's like, what, what, what? So she pulls over to the shoulder. My grandmother jumps out. So now you got to picture this, Long Island Expressway, tiny little blue Chevrolet, pulls off to the highway, and out pops these two little Asian people, women, and they are now frantically running up and down the shoulder of the LIE. For those who don't know the Long Island Expressway, otherwise known as the LIE, it's three lanes, the main thoroughfare east and west from Manhattan out to Long Island. And That's correct. And traffic and speeding cars and mayhem all the time. So here they are, these two trying to catch a chicken. <laughs> a chicken. Like, what the hell is a chicken doing on the shoulder Side of an LIE, right? <laughs> so there they are. They're running around trying to catch this chicken, and they finally catch it. They get in the car. They drive home, and now my grandmother is elated 
because now she's got a chicken and she's now currently building a chicken coop in the basement. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, what? first of all, like, what's a chicken doing on the LIE? And she's like, I don't know, but your grandma found, you know, saw it. And, and she, now she has a pet. She's like, leave your grandmother alone. You know, she needs something to do. You know, she's got a chicken now. She's going to take care of the chicken. And I'm like, I don't know. What if it's a chicken that got loose from some sort of, you know, research center? Oh, and, you know, like, she's like, She's like, no, no, Grandma thinks it's just a regular chicken from somebody's home because, you know, there was a string attached to one of its feet. And I was like, what does that have to do anything? And she's like, well, usually when you raise chickens, you tie a, uh, a string when they're young to one of their legs so that they're restricted. And after a while, they no longer go beyond a certain boundary. Did you know that? I didn't know that. I I remember briefly hearing something about that. I don't know so, if it's cruel and unusual punishment cruel. or... Exactly, <laughs> but this is how my grandmother justified that this was not a radioactive chicken, you know, <laughs> that somehow got loose from a research center. It was a string attached to its ankle. So the chicken stayed in the basement, and then spring came, and it was spring... Break, so we were, my sisters and I were all heading home, and I was the last one to come down. And so my mom picks me up from the train station, and we're driving, and, and you know, I'm like, oh, I'm so excited, you know, to see Grandma. And she goes, oh, she turns around, she goes, don't mention the chicken. I'm like, what? She's like, don't mention the chicken. I'm like, okay, but why? She's like, your grandmother is extremely upset. And I'm like, why? She's like, because... You know, it was nice, the weather was nice, so your grandma decided to take the chicken and, and the chicken coop and put it in the backyard, and, you know, so she set up the chicken coop so the chicken could get some sun, and you know how our neighbor, they have that big dog in the, you know, and I said, the neighbor from the back? I was like, yes. Yeah. Well, he somehow got into our yard and ate the chicken, and your grandma is so upset. She's so upset. Don't mention the chicken. We spent the whole week with my grandma and my mom and my dad, and we're having a great week. And it's, uh, like, the last dinner before all three of us are going back to school. So my grandma, of course, made this humongous table of delicious Korean food, right? And, you know, we're all sitting, and, you know, like, all of our favorite dishes are there, and, you know, we're eating and laughing, and... My, my grandma goes, so did you like the tofu stew? Was it spicy enough? And I was like, oh, yeah. My sister's like, oh, my God, it was delicious. It was great. And then all of a sudden, you know, slowly we see my mom and my grandmother giggling. And so we're like, what's so funny? And they're giggling. And my, and my sisters and I are like, okay. And then all of a sudden, my mom starts pointing to the stew and laughing. She's like, that's the chicken. And I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, that's the chicken. That's the chicken we've been raising for you guys. Oh, my gosh. And my sisters are like, the L-I-E chicken? She's like, yeah, that's the chicken. <laughs> and my sisters and I, for like a split second, we were like, no. <laughs> and then we realized, well, it was good. It's in our stomach. What are we going to do? 
Oh, my God. So my mom and my grandmother planned this whole story. So there was no dog. Right. Because they knew if we told, if they told them that that was the chicken that they found on the LIE that they raised, that they raised specifically so they can actually give fresh chicken to their daughters, they knew they would never eat it. We're an American. Why would you know? Why would I eat a chicken that you just freshly killed? Especially when they found it on the LIE. They were in cahoots the whole time. They completely made up the story so that <laughs> they can present the tofu chicken stew that we, of course, devoured. Oh, so, so it was great. deception to just be able to give us, you know, love through fresh chicken. Always love first. Love shown in all different ways. We're lucky. Our family has a very good sense of humor on both sides of the family. And I think this was just one way of deciding to get a good laugh out of their children. We have so much more to talk about. You went to RISD and then you mm-hmm. went on to get a master's in science and become an acupuncturist and a healer and a doula and a yoga instructor and a cranial sacral practitioner. You certainly are so giving uh, to your patients and clients and friends. And it it comes through in so many ways. So I want to thank you for sharing all these wonderful stories so we get a little bit understanding of um, not only the cultural differences, but just each of our life experiences. They're all unique and, and special in one way, shape, or form. Well, thank you for having me. And now I'm going to have to call my mom and be like, Mom, did you realize that when we talked through the mirror, that was a way to circumvent the uncomfortableness that, you know, in our culture of, like, talking face-to-face, like, that was a total eye-opener for me. That's pretty cool. Uh, You know, it happens when I start these conversations. It just makes the wheels start to spin, and that's one of the many wonderful things that I love about doing this. So I'm glad that came to mind. I'm really glad. Leah Kim, acupuncturist, practices in New York and New Jersey. If anyone needs any help with so many different issues that we're all afflicted with these days and you're in the area, I suggest you get in touch with her or you could always reach out to me at Jackie at shouldhavelistentomymother.com. It is a weekly podcast that I get to host. Leah Kim has been this week's guest. Thank you for joining me. Well, thank you, Jackie. And it was so much fun to just tell my stories and, and actually get a great response from you.